This morning we have a very strong reading from God's Word. But like all of God's Word, it is a hundred percent truth. Reading from Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for one unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's pretty intense, but it's very good for us to consider, because when we do that, we'll see God even clearer. Let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we can be uh, here with uh, each other today to hear from you, and as we uh, consider these hard words uh, from Romans chapter 1, 
help us to see the contrast really between humanity's rejection of you and the song that we just sung about how holy you are. Help us to see how you don't leave us in that state, but give us a great solution in Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, This is a great passage, actually. Uh, I don't know how you felt about it. Um, If you're visiting us today and I'm not sure where everyone is with God, you may be thinking, I'm out already. Why did I come? I would love you to think, why, why would you possibly talk about this in church? I would love you to just maybe spend a few moments thinking about, okay, clearly I don't agree with this. Why do Christians believe it? If you're willing to do that with us, Uh, That'd be great, because I think it's really, actually really helpful and, believe it or not, enormously encouraging to hear these words. Uh, So that's just a little preamble I thought I'd give uh, to get us in the right frame of mind, but um, it'd be really good if you had a Bible in front of you on your phone. There's Bibles just on the back uh, chairs there on the beginning of the steps going up. If you want one, feel free to get up and get one. Um, I haven't, as I often do, put all the passages on the slides up the front uh, today, Um, and the outlines have a a clear breakdown um, of it in the booklets if you've got one of them as well. As I kick off today, I was thinking, do you have ever the situation when you're in denial of a big problem? Have you ever been in denial of a big problem? No? Maybe that's it, <laughs> that you never have been in it, had a big problem and that you're not. Um, uh, many of you know, I've probably said it at the front before, but I have a big denial that I'm coming around to believing in and it's too late and I know I'm going to face the consequences. Does anyone know what I might be talking about? Playing for Australia, yeah, that's, oh, that's another one. Who thinks that? Yeah, that's true. That is true. I've accepted that. That's not going to happen. My teeth. I have a problem that I've been in denial about about my teeth for a very long time. Let me ask you, put up your hand if you think you should just brush your teeth two times a day. Not many of you. One time a day is fine. Once a week. You had the same denial as me, Jason. That's exactly the problem. (laughs) I have not been very good at brushing my teeth as an adult. Like, I would say atrocious. And I've been in denial that I have a problem with my teeth because my teeth are still awesome. Every time I go to the dentist, they say, your teeth are really good. And I think that's fantastic because Jen is so diligent with the brushing of her teeth and her teeth have let her down. And I I revel in that a bit too much. But if science is anything to go by, if statistics are anything to go by, I'm on the precipice of disaster. I brush my teeth more regularly now, I wouldn't say the right amount, more regularly now than I should. No. More regularly now than I had, right? I brush them more regularly than I had, but I can't make up for lost time here. And so I just live in denial that it's going to happen, that I'm going to have lots of problems. And I'm just going to revel in the good times now before it really goes bad. Our goal today is that we need to throw denial to the curb in seeing our problem with God. So we need to we need to get past thinking we don't really have a bad problem and actually get to seeing 
there is a significant problem between us and God and He wants us to know it and we cannot deny it. The great news is, unlike my teeth where I think it's too late, it's not too late if we see God's Word and acknowledge our problem before Him. And so that's what we're going to do today in this passage and it's a, it's a challenging one and it's got lots of us to think about, even more than I can reflect on today. But it's a very helpful passage because it's really cleverly broken down for us. And really, the first verse is the summary statement, the overarching statement of the whole book. And there it is up there on the screen. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, that statement, speaking to all humanity, I think is the overarching uh, point that he is making from here all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. And from verse 19 to 3.20, it's the, all right, then prove it to me. And the argument gets deep and involved to show this is the reality. And as we look back, what's chapter 1, verse 17 tell us? If we open it up there, if you've got it in front of you, and I did have it in front of me until I pulled out my place, in Romans chapter 1, what do we see? We see, instead of wrath... We see verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Then in verse 17, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. God's righteousness that brings salvation is coming. There is salvation and it's great. We looked at that last week and that was lots of uh, fun to really consider and to be transformed by that last week. But as we See, the contrast now with that, the reason that there is salvation is because God is revealing His wrath. That is key for us to see. And as He does this, He starts off, and I think what's actually happening in the passage that we're looking at today, well, it's the whole argument of, the, of this section all the way through to 3.20, the bit we're focusing on today, 18 to 32... I think he's specifically focusing on the Gentiles, but not to say that the Jews have a problem because we get to chapter 2 and, and he says to them, you are without excuse too and I'm going to talk to you as well and then it brings it back together. But as he sees the big picture, this is humanity's problem as he addresses the Gentiles. You see, he says, God has wrath. Anger. He is not okay with his creation, rejecting the way he wants them to be. Now, that is reasonable. If God, the Lord of all, the creator of all things, who is holy that we sung about, if he truly is that, and he is good in every way, and he makes us in his image, as the very first chapter of the Bible tells us, we are made to live in his image we reject that, he's not okay with it. And the extent of his not being okay is that he rightly has wrath about it. And it's not something that is a surprise or that isn't being revealed. We see it in his word. It's being revealed in these words and it's being revealed in the world. The wrath of God is being revealed as his salvation is revealed. The rejection of him 
is the suppressing of truth by turning away from God. God is truth. To ignore that in whatever way, to suppress that, to push that down, causes God to reveal his wrath. But here's the important thing. We don't want to do any kind of theological gymnastics and make it as if it's not us that are the problem. And he makes it clear in this verse. Have a look. Verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Humanity is the object of his wrath. We can't escape that. We get down into the depths because that's the reality. Now, I don't know um, if you've ever heard this phrase. I, I, I love Calvin and Hobbes. I think just so great on so many levels. It's funny. It gives great insights into humanity and, and, and all sorts of things. But in this little clip, is it clear enough there? Yeah, there's Calvin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. And Dad's just got home from work. He's probably had a really tough day and he comes home and he's just thinking, oh, no, here we go again, Calvin, you cheeky little monkey. Like... Have you heard that phrase before? Love the sinner, hate the sin? I mean, I wonder, well, it's right. Jesus loved the sinner. He came and made this specific point to hang out with those that were considered to be the sinners. Those who thought they were the elite. He, he, he was showing that they had just as much the problem, but he hung out with those who were the sinners, those who were outcasts. He loved the sinner. And he hated people rejecting him. He spoke so much about the problem of rejecting God that you can't just say Jesus was a nice guy. And he just spoke on love. He spoke about hell. He spoke about um, the problem of rejecting God abundantly. You read any gospel and you will see that very clearly if you're looking for it. But the problem here in this little uh, picture is the intent of Calvin. Why does he say it? Because he doesn't want to face his dad's wrath. Just be angry at the sin, but love me, ignore me, don't worry about me, I'm, I'm your cute son. Love still reigns, but there still has to be wrath to be dealt with. That is how our God works. And so... The object of wrath is us because we suppress the truth without Jesus. In verse 19 to 20, there's enough here to talk about for a long time and would love to, but let me just give you the summary of it because there's other things I want to point to. But here he's just making the point that, you know what, this is plain. People will say it's not plain, but the reality is it is. You just suppressed it. So verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The point is, God is not unjust. The righteous God is not angry and people can't accept 
people can say, well, you've been unfairly angry towards me and how could have I possibly known? None of us here in that way could possibly say that, could we? we could, none of us could actually say, I never heard that God was angry at me. We couldn't do it. The point is, no one can say, I have a good excuse, I can be Calvin, and say, excuse me, I'm okay. We are without excuse as humanity. So there is the overarching idea. I don't know how you feel about it. You may be starting to well up in a bit of frustration and anger yourself at how how dare I say these things? Or you may be thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what does it really look like? What has humanity done? Well, my second point is, what humanity has done is a very poor exchange. And this passage kind of makes it very clear for us in, uh, in highlighting this um, by giving us some examples. First of all, we see in verse 21 how foolish people are. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. See, we can think we are right, we can think we can be wise but really, you're a fool. Now, the important thing to remember with fool is it's not the way we use fool. Many of you have called me a fool. (laughs) I've called probably a few of you a fool, but I'm not using it in the Bible sense. I really hope you're not using it in the Bible sense towards me. It's just, it's a bit of a colloquial way that we say, you're a goose. That was a silly thing you did. And I've done some silly things and so you pointed out to me. It's fair enough. You're a fool. The Bible uses fool to point to those who are in absolute rejection of God. Proverbs uses the word fool to highlight the anti-relationship towards a wise person in regards to God. It is the really offensive way of talking about someone. It's the person who has got total ignorance towards God by their own doing and the sin that leads into that. The fool is very different to the way we use it. And so, what have the foolish people done? This very poor exchange that I mentioned at the beginning of this point. Look at verse 23 with me. What did the fools do? Exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. What have the fools done? The golden calf. You know that story? If you don't know the story, God's people, when God was establishing his people, the Israelites, and they've escaped Egypt, and there's Moses going up the mountain to find out how God wants them to live, and the people are all going to live for God. And while they're waiting for Moses, what do they do as God is speaking to their leader? They get all their wealth and create a golden calf to worship. They've exchanged God and worshipping Him and declaring His holy for worshipping an animal and even a representation of an animal. 
and it's still happening today. This isn't a unique moment in history. It is all of history post the fall. And we are so good at it today, we just worship inanimate objects that haven't even got an association with an animal that we want to see as God. We just worship the object itself. And Paul makes that point, actually, as kind of a sub-point, just to highlight it in verse 25. He says, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. So this truth, we don't want that. We'll go with the lie because we think it's better. And worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. It's all about worship and magnifying God's glory. You see it, see it there? Worship. Who are you worshipping? It's misplaced worship. We sing songs of praise to God because He is who we worship. We don't sing songs of uh, praise to anyone else at church. We don't sing songs of praise to me. That would be super concerning. I would feel mega uncomfortable and that would be completely wrong and heretical. That would be a cult. We don't sing songs to praise of you. We don't sing songs to praise... We don't even take the Bible in of itself and praise it as if it's a special object. But we actually, as a society, have created many things that we worship, the things that we love. We love to worship them. Who has ever been to a sporting match where there was a song sung. Yeah, we have, lots of us. Anyone who loves sport, if you don't love sport, hang in with me. Singing is a big deal in sporting venues. Australians have kind of pushed it down a little bit because, you know, it's not the way we do things. But go to England and go to a soccer match and every club will tell you they have their song. And before every game, the song they sing their song. And when the team is doing well, they sing praises to their team in glorious, harmonious celebration. Because that is ultimately what you worship. And so you praise it. If you were to have a guess, all the, the music of today, uh, the pop songs of today, what's the number one theme of our pop songs of today? In one word, I reckon you could even narrow it down even more than love. I reckon it's sex. That's what's behind it all. Why? Because it's what we worship. And so, what humanity has done is a terrible exchange, but thinking it is better, it is good. We prefer the world, is what humanity says. And so in verse 28, we see, furthermore, so you've exchanged these things and aren't worshipping God, let's even see how bad it gets, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, let's jump down to verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant. Well, this goes on. Rejection of God's holiness, His righteousness, and thinking this way is better, is humanity's plight. So God does not like it, is an understatement. The wrath of God is being revealed, 
makes more sense if that is what his creation has chosen to do instead of him. So what has God done? You may have noticed that I kind of just bypassed a few verses there as we read through. That's because I want us to see now how woven throughout this passage is God's dealing with this rejection, this exchange. Look at verse 24, verse 26 and verse 28, if you've got your Bible in, in, in front of you. What are the four words that are said in each verse? What's the phrase? Yell it out if you've got it. God gave them over. God gave them up, depending on your translation. God gave them over. What's God's response? How does he deal with it? Okay, go for it. That's what he says. You think, you think that that's a better option? The consequences will be significant. Do what you want to do. I'll allow the exchange. Worship whatever you like. Sexuality can be your God. Let's have a look. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay? Sexuality can be your God. Do whatever you want. And it's important to say... And really controversial to say in our time in history, in our society, but it's important to say we cannot avoid the reality that same-gender sex is not what God wants. Our society can and has quite clearly and blatantly made the decision sexual freedom is paramount, as long as it's consensual. And we have massive problems with that. But we cannot recast the God of the Bible and say, actually, you know what, as we think about society and look at what the Bible says, it's not actually what it means in our culture and society today. The Bible is just clear on it. And anyone who tries to teach with the Bible anything different is just actually living the denial that these passages say. The Roman... The Roman society had that same problem that our society has today, exchanging unnatural sexual relations in all sorts of manner of ways. And we also need not overstate the emphasis on, on uh, same-sex uh, issues here. All sexual sin is included. See, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts and the context in Rome was that there was significant uh, same-sex going on. But it's bigger than that. Lust is included. Adultery, you know, adultery is a big issue for God. And it fits here. 
The Bible talks about our problem with God as our adultery. God hates adultery. It's one of the commandments way back. Sexual sin is a bigger problem than what we want to cast it down into. Christian men and women are struggling to wrestle with this today. How do we think about it? And we need to make sure we see what God wants clearly. He does not want us to fall in line and say, same-sex attraction, which is real, means that you can have sex with whoever you want and it doesn't matter about gender. God actually wants us to see he actually gave us sex and it is good the way he created it. is a big issue for our society. But this issue, like verse 29, highlighted in 30 and 31, all sorts of manner of wickedness and evil is the problem that God gives us over to. The key thing though, one of the important things rather to think about, if in our way to hold to truth, we fall into bigotry and phobia, God despises that just as much. We stand against that when it happens. And as a side point, as I was reflecting on what happened um, in, in Christchurch and people had uh, asked me about it, and because it happened at a mosque and so not in a church, how do we think about it? And if any, anyone, any Christian, really, really, I get fired up. If I hear Christians proclaiming this is a good thing in any way or hinting down that path, that is ridiculous. Humanity should never be treated that way and so we should rightly stand, this is a horrendous thing. The churches in Christchurch should love and care for that city as much and as best they can. We should be able, as Christians, to see someone of a different religion who has been treated abominably and say to them, this is not how humans should treat other humans. While at the same time, not meaning, therefore, let's just talk about the things that we believe in and you don't think Jesus is God, oh, that's okay, I won't talk about Jesus being God. That's not what you do in response. You love, you care, but I want to be able to say, you know what, Jesus is God. He did die for you. You can tell me he's not, but we can talk about that. But at the moment, I want to care for you. I think we need to think like that in any kind of, uh, in any kind of way in which we have people that are very different to us. Love does triumph, but not in a sense in which we compromise God. See, the main point isn't sexual sin or sin or, or uh, what we've done that's wrong as a humanity. The main point of this passage, the wrath of God is being revealed because it's a replacing the worship of God that is the problem. God is allowing the exchange where the other person 
has bought what they think is the best thing you can get. The way I was thinking about this now, I'm not a car person, but I was trying to think, what's the best car that you can get? If you're a car person and you want to upgrade, you might go for a Ferrari or whatever car you think is the best one you could get. What humanity has done is thought, instead of, instead of God, um, in car terms, I'm going to upgrade to a Ferrari because this is better. But in reality, the Ferrari that humanity gets is just a shell. That's a Ferrari shell. It doesn't work. Still kind of there. Sex is rampant in our society. It's good. It's from God, but it's just abused. That car's not going to work. Either is sex outside of God's way actually going to work well. What you think is the Ferrari is no Ferrari at all when you replace God. So how do we think about all of this? I think there's a very important question for us today. Is God really angry? Am I overstating it? Do we really need to talk in this much depth about his wrath? Some of you have grown up in churches of the past and where fire and brimstone is all you kind of heard. And it's like guilting you into hearing, hearing it. That's not why we talk about it. But do we really need to talk about it? Well, what happens if you do an exam and you keep failing it or assignments and you keep failing it? but you just keep avoiding that you failed it. I know many of you do exams and assignments, you're doing postgraduate studies, you're at uni, you're at school. What happens if you just avoid your failing? You don't get where you want to go. It doesn't work. If we just are in denial of our problem, we can't see how great the solution is. And God's wrath is real. And the reason I want us to just hear this very clearly today is there is a tendency to minimise God's wrath within Christianity today. A big tendency. I'm going to talk about this even a little bit more when we do chapter 3 verse 21 and 26. You see, there's a tendency to think God is primarily not angry with humanity. He, he absorbs our sin. He takes over our, all the other great ways we can talk about what God has done for us so we, we can talk about all those things which are true and right and good, but when it comes to God dealing with our wrath, we don't want to talk about that. We emphasise God's love. Look, okay, the wrath's there, but humanity can't swallow it. So we'll just talk about God's love. Well, if humanity can't swallow it, why did God, in his revelation and in his wisdom, give us chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, if humanity couldn't swallow it. But sometimes it even goes further to think it's outrageous to see that a loving God is full of wrath, just an outright denial that there is wrath from God. We have a problem and he's dealing with it, but this idea of wrath is a massive overstatement because if he deals with his wrath on Jesus, that's just child abuse in some sense. And very notable Christian figures still say these things today. And they're not true. You see, a righteous God who saves, which we saw last week, is also a righteous God who deals with his wrath in the framework of love. We need to hold it at the very centre of what we believe because it is part of the heart of the Christian message, the dealing of God's wrath. 
That is why in John 3.36, I've brought this up many times because of this reason, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath might come, maybe, it's not a big deal, let's not talk about it, or God's wrath remains on them. That comes just after that magnificent verse, John 3.16, which you know, many of you, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Shall not perish because you're facing God's wrath. God's love is how he deals with this wrath. And this love takes him to the cross. I love this book, um, this little book on the atonement, how God deals with his, uh, his wrath. It goes through the whole, how the Old Testament, New Testament talks about this theme throughout, through the atonement. But the reason I bring it up today is because the title is exactly what I'm trying to get, get at. It's called, Where Wrath and Mercy Meet. And if you can see it there, where does it meet? It meets at the cross. Where is God's love? Where Jesus takes our place. Where is God's wrath? Being poured on his son instead of us because he wants us to be righteous that we can't do in ourselves. Where wrath and mercy meets is at the cross. And if we take out wrath, we minimise the very thing that you and I sing every Sunday that we praise, that we thank God for, that Jesus died for us. The power of God for salvation is reduced if we take away God's wrath. So as we see that God's wrath is real and we can't deny it, how do we reflect on this? I've just got three little points. You've got the outline there. You can see that there's a point there that needs to be filled out. And the first one is, today is no different. Humanity is still making a very poor exchange. This is not an, uh, a tricky statement to say or one that I think I need to justify. We are a ridicul- ridiculously over-sexualised society. Blind Freddie can see that. We've just put ourselves in this situation and men and women are really struggling to understand a way forward. What's coming out in the disgusting way men have behaved is awful. And if you delve into the reality of this, the reason why celebrities have gone this far, they have the power and the means to a problem that many men have been wrestling with and have stuffed up. Society is even seeing that things have gone too far. Adultery is in epic proportion. Sex is just the physical bashing together of two bodies because it feels good. Or it can just be that until you find the right person. Just get on and have some fun. If you enjoy it, do it. Society as a whole has massive problems here. Individually, we have massive problems. The problem is we think we are wise to fix it. And the challenge for us if you're a follower of Jesus, is we can start to think and we can get eroded away to start to wonder, maybe they have a point. The exchange is real and it's happening today and that is what Jesus came for. Secondly, 
We need to feel the weight but not be overwhelmed that we actually get to the point of having no hope. We need to feel the weight of the problem. Um, in other words, uh, the way I want to help you see this is that, uh, have you heard of Martin Luther? Many of you have heard of Martin Luther. Here's the reason, the beginning of the reason of the, the Protestant Reformation. And if you, if you don't know who he was, he was, he was a Catholic monk in the medieval ages. He was a Catholic monk in the medieval church where Jesus plus human participation, where you do stuff, sacraments, works and all these other things, gets you into heaven. You need to be good and Jesus, but you need to, be, you need to do stuff, right? And he had insight into this problem that we've seen today, how bad sin was, that he was riddled with guilt and it was overwhelming him. He could not see, how can God possibly be right with me? He was a monk. He was trying everything he could possibly do. Nothing he did, he felt, could make up for his sin. He was so overwhelmed with guilt by it. And he, he was having a real crack at doing stuff, plus believing in Jesus, to get there, and it wasn't working for him. The guilt and despair was too much. There's a great story um, as reported of. He, one of his mentors that he'd often confess his sin to, in the Catholic Church, you can go into the confessional, you may have seen it in religious movies and whatever, um, and, and uh, you confess your sins. And his mentor that he'd do this with, Stoutpitz, I'm sure that's said wrong, uh, he, uh, once he reported that Luther kept in, him in the confessional for six hours as he laboured to ease his troubled conscience. He actually joked that uh, he went on for endless hours without confessing anything interesting. <laughs> then Luther realised the problem was he was adding himself to try and get right. And he was overwhelming himself by his hopelessness instead of saying, Jesus has dealt with it all. You are free in Jesus. That was the revelation that turned the church around that you trust in Jesus and you don't have to be overwhelmed by this guilt. You need to see it. You need to see how significantly big the problem is and then... ...that Jesus on the cross brings. Any of us can take that on board today. Even if you've always thought this way of thinking is so horrendously wrong, Jesus has dealt with it. You can take that on board without thinking what you have to do, you just trust in Him. And so you live by faith, which we saw last week. And so I want to conclude today by saying, living by faith requires understanding your situation before God without Jesus. That is, the more you understand your sinfulness, the greater you can draw near to God with confidence. If you cast your minds, if you're in the privilege of seeing uh, godly people who have run the race a lot more than you have, and you know they're more godly than you, but yet they talk about the depths of their sinfulness more, and you think, what's going on there? Just when you understand God more and more, how He's freed you, you can see the reality of what He's pulled you out of. And you have great confidence in that. And I want to encourage you today to leave with that. 
I have got it completely wrong. I worship the things that are not of God. I've exchanged God without Jesus. And yet, I can come before Him and confess that knowing He forgives me with absolute assurance and confidence. That is why I said this heavy passage gives us such freedom. So I want us to finish today by doing something we do sometimes when we have the Lord's Supper and in other times, by you finishing the application with me of this talk, by us together as his people, acknowledging our sin before him, knowing that we are forgiven because Jesus has actually dealt with his wrath, which we'll see even more so in a couple of weeks' time. And as we do that together, we'll even continue on a little bit later in the service in prayer and thankfulness as we have more prayers read, as we have a time of prayer, coming before God in thankfulness, knowing we are forgiven. So let me now uh, lead us uh, in a time of acknowledging before our great God that we have sinned, but where His wrath goes, or where it meets, is His mercy at the cross. So this uh, prayer of confession that we've said before uh, should come up on the screen. If you can uh, do that for me up at the back. And uh, just spend a moment. If you are one who loves Jesus, even if it's for the first time today, you can say these words and know you're forgiven in Him. And it's good for His people to do this together. Let's spend a moment acknowledging um, to ourselves the times we've got it wrong this week and then together with great confidence we'll, we'll pray this prayer of confession. Let's pray together these words on the screen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have gone our own way not loving you as we ought, nor loving our neighbour as ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word and deed and in what we have failed to do. We deserve your condemnation. Father, forgive us. Help us to love you and our neighbours and to live for your honour and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. That's an amen with the assurance that forgiveness is given at the cross.